Thank you for that. In your Bible, if you would look with me to Matthew chapter number 9, Matthew chapter number 9, we're going to read verse 35 down to through chapter 10, verse 5. Matthew chapter number 9, verse 35 through chapter 10, verse 5. We'll look at these 10 verses. The Bible tells us here, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto the disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the name of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who's called Peter and Andrew, his brother James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into the city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. And we'll just read the next two. But go, uh, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach. Father, we thank you. For your word today, we pray that our hearts would be receptive, and may you do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the working of your mighty power in this service, in the next. We ask it all in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. This year, there have been 60 million people that have been born into this world that we're not here in 2022. And at the same time, there has also been 30 million people worldwide who have died. Every day, there are 385,000 people born in the world and approximately 192,000 people who die every single day around the world. That's really an incredible reality, isn't it? I mean, there may be, what, 300,000 people in Dayton? It's like a Dayton being born every day. The Bible's clear that every one of these souls that comes into the world needs the gospel. Jesus is giving us the picture in chapter 9 that the harvest truly is great, and when we look upon the landscape of our world, we would amen that. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that if our gospel, the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation, if we hide that, it is hid to them that are lost. In Romans 10, 13, the Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And so we see that the gospel is the hope of the world. Sometimes people say, if people have never heard the gospel, will they be held accountable? Yes. If ignorance brought salvation, we would never send missionaries. Right? If people not knowing the truth gave them salvation, then we would never tell them. Better to know, send no one around the world, but that's a devil's lie. The Bible tells us, except you repent, you'll perish. That all will stand before God. And Romans 1.20 tells us that everyone is held accountable and are without excuse based upon just the general revelation of God in creation. But they must have the gospel in order to be saved. The purpose statement of Lighthouse Baptist Church, why we exist is for this reason. To glorify God supremely in all we do. To love people sincerely, the second great commandment, where they are. And to carry out the great commission with passion. The chief motive of the church is the glory of God. But the chief mission of the church is the great commission. Sometimes people ask, what's the difference about Lighthouse Baptist Church? Well, one of the key differences is we seek to carry out the great commission in, in sincerity and passionately, we believe that the mission is ours to bring the gospel to the world. 
I praise God for the thousands of souls who confess Christ as their Savior through these ministries at Lighthouse over these 13 years and the 60 missionaries that we support. But friends, the work is not done. That's one of the difficulties of ministry. I I used to love doing construction work because you could finish a project and be like, man, that's finished, that looks nice. But in ministry, it never ends. You never, it it never, you know, salvation is never accomplished enough. There's always more. And then sanctification is a continual process as well, right? So the process always goes on. And in the face of such a great task, how do we respond? I mean, what, what do we do? And Jesus tells us what to do in verse 37. He points to a root problem. He says, Then saith he in verse 37 to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. And what does that mean? Well, it means that very few are going to bring the gospel to those that are in need. Christians are not bringing the gospel like they should. And why are so few going? Why are there so few pastors and teachers and missionaries and Christians that are faithfully bringing the gospel to a world that is in desperate need? Well, hold your place there. You can flip over to John chapter 4. Last week, we had a wonderful time with uh, Brother Tim Lee, and if you were in this early service, uh, he preached a whole different sermon in the second service. He gave his testimony in the second service, so if you didn't get to hear that ever before, uh, you, can, uh, you can pull that up online and, and listen to that. But he preached on the woman at the well in the early service, and Jesus brings the gospel of himself to her. She said, we know that when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And he said, I that speak unto thee am he. Verse 31, it says, In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. The woman had left. She had come to faith in Christ. She left. They come and says, Master, you need to eat. And he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath anyone brought him aught to eat? Somebody brought him some food when we were gone? Jesus saith unto him, unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. In other words, Jesus was more satisfied by doing the work of God than eating lunch. He would rather skip a meal. It was more, he had had more of a hunger to fulfill the will of God than to fulfill his physical appetites. And he says to them in verse 35, Say not ye, there are four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Now let me say, one key reason, one key reason so few are going is because they are not lifting up their eyes. They do not look at a world that is lost and in need of the gospel. People are more concerned about what they're eating for lunch than if their neighbor knows about Jesus. They, they, do, they, they, they consider their meal. They miss the harvest of souls for the harvest of food or games or events. Of course you need to eat. Of course you need to work. Of course it's fine to be involved in different activities, but it's not okay to miss the harvest. I would ask the question this morning, who is the last person that you looked on with eyes of compassion because they didn't know Jesus Christ? If you don't have eyes that see that, you'll never tell them. If you never see them as a lost soul in need of the gospel, you will have no words in your mouth to tell them. It starts with a burden. It starts with a burning desire and desperate need of their salvation. And what should we do in face of such a great need and face of the void of labors? Well, what does Jesus say to do? Verse 38. And let me say this. A lot of times people try to reason and come up with plans. You just have to ask, what's the Bible say? Isn't that a good question? A lot of times I'll ask somebody, I'll say, read that verse and tell me what it means. They'll read it and then they'll say something that has nothing to do with the verse. And I'm like, did you hear what I asked? Like, like look at the verse and tell me what it means, not what you mean. Like, does that make sense? It happens all the time. And I'm thinking, if we can't even base truth on the Bible, when we're asked about the Bible, how easy would it be not to base truth on the Bible when we're not thinking about it like that? And so, what does Jesus say to do? Like, like when I ask the question, what should we do in face of such a great need? People start coming up with ideas instead of saying, well, what does the Bible say about it? We need to be Bereans, don't we? Like, let's look into the Scriptures. Verse 38, he says, 
Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that He will send forth laborers in His harvest. I can tell you, nobody would have thought that. Most people say, you know, we need to have signs, we need to go out, we need to go door to door, we need to do all these things. Well, what's Jesus say to do? He says it starts with praying that the Lord of the harvest, that God would send laborers into this harvest. Now, why, why ask God to do that? Because no one will go unless God implants that into their depraved heart. He implants the gospel, and then He plants His burden. Listen, I'm not here because I chose ministry. I'm here because God chose me for the ministry. I did not choose Him. He chose me. You're not here today because you're such a good person. You're here today because God graciously chose you, saved you, and has given you His word into your soul. And, and we need to plead with God that He would burden us, not only for the gospel for our own soul, but also for the lost world. Now, what does it mean to pray for labors? It means that for a soul to be reached with the gospel, for people to be saved, God has chosen to use normal, everyday people like us to bring them the gospel. The only way the lost will come to Christ is for believers to spread the seed. Remember Matthew 13. The problem was never with the seed, was it? It was with the soil. The soil represents men's heart, and we are to spread that seed, and it brings forth a harvest. The problem is we don't have enough seed spreaders. We have two problems in our culture. One is the soils turning hard, and less are spreading the seed. We, we must go forth. God has chosen, the Bible says, the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. How will they hear without a preacher? So who is the last person that you shared the gospel with? The last person you shared the gospel with would have been the last person you looked on with a burden. Who's the last person that you looked upon and thought, you know what, they need the gospel more than I need to eat lunch Who's the last person you even invited to church? And many of you do that on a weekly basis. Praise God for that. I had a guy I went out to lunch with this week. He had some questions. And, and when I went out to eat with him, um, the waitress came by. He said, hey, this is my pastor that I've told you about. This is the, this is the pastor of the church that I go to. I mean, he, he was so comfortable uh, having shared his faith with the waitress that we didn't know who the waitress would be, and he had already talked to her. I said, praise God for that. So I was able to have a good conversation there and be open about your faith. I fear we can so often miss the harvest because we're looking at the lunch level priorities of life, the common everyday things of the flesh, and are causing us to miss out on the harvest that the Father's pointing us to. If the disciples missed it, do you think we will? If they left everything to follow Jesus and their eyes were more on lunch, do you think we as Baptists sitting in this room would do the same? Doesn't matter if you're Baptist, I'm just saying we like to eat typically. But Now today we need to cry out to God to get a hold of the hearts of labors. Listen, if you love the lost, you need to pray for labors. Plead with God to send labors into the harvest field. Those who pray for laborers will find that they cannot help but be a laborer themselves. MacArthur was right when he said, The believer who prays for God to send workers but is unwilling to go himself prays insincerely and hypocritically. You cannot say with sincerity, God send laborers unless you're willing to raise your hand to be one. And as we pray, the result is chapter 10. As we pray, the result is chapter 10. Here you see the Lord of the harvest fulfilling his own prayer. Jesus calls laborers and sends them forth to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Over the next few weeks, I want to look at both the method of preparation of how Jesus discipled, trained men, and sent them out. This is his discipleship process. What kind of men did Jesus choose? I believe this will be extremely helpful. I'm going to break down the lives of these disciples with you over these weeks. We live in a day when you have cathedrals built to the 12 disciples. You see their images in stained glass windows with halos around their head. And we think about them as being even more than human sometimes in a false way. That is not who they were. These were normal, everyday people like you and I. The only special thing about them was their relationship with Jesus and what Jesus called them to do. We will see that just as God chose to use their lives, so God 
can and will use our life as we surrender to Him. We will see how important it is for us to both be a faithful disciple and how to faithfully disciple others. If you care about the world, if you care about the lost, if you care that 60 million new people were born into this world and 30 million have died this year already, you need to listen to these sermons. And so the first thing we see here is Jesus calls the 12 in verse number 1. It says, and he called unto him his 12 disciples. Again, in verse 38, Jesus prays for labors, and now he practiced what he preaches. In Luke's gospel, you don't have it in Matthew's gospel here, but there is a separation between verse 38 and chapter 10, verse 1. Luke 6, verse 12 and 13 highlight what happens. It came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray, and what does he do all night? Yeah, he continued all night in prayer to God. You know what he did all night in prayer to God? He prayed for labors. When he said, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send labors, he literally spent the whole night doing that. We can't even get Christians to pray at their seats or at an altar or even once a week for these kind of things often. Most Christians don't even know they're supposed to pray for labors. Christ was so intentional about this. It says, and when it was day, what's it say there? He called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. So before he chose twelve specific men, he sought the will of the Father. And you know what the will of the Father was? To give him twelve of those guys. The Father gave Jesus twelve men. That's why Jesus said in John 15, 16, You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. It's why the... John 17, 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name, Father, your name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were. They got saved. They belonged to you, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. You need to understand it is the divine call of God upon the heart of people. These men were sovereignly chosen by God to this work. This was the plan and design of God to call them. Jesus prayed, and the Father gave Christ these 12 men. Now up to this point, you need to understand, Jesus had been preaching and teaching alone. He was ministering alone. Although the disciples were with him, he was the one doing all the work. And so for the ministry to continue and to go into all the world, this, there had to be a, a, a multiplication process that would begin to happen. And it's critical for you to understand that whatever God has done in you, He wants to do through you. Does that make sense? So if He brought you into salvation, He wants to bring the gospel through you to reach others with the gospel. As you grow as a believer, and as He works in you in sanctification and growth, He wants to work through you to help other people to grow. And the Bible rebukes those who do not grow and learn. The author of Hebrews is speaking about Jesus and says in Hebrews 5.11, of whom we have many things to say. In other words, we have a lot to teach you about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. We have many things to say. And he says, and hard to be uttered, seeing you are, what kind? Dull of hearing. Now, what does that word mean? Dull is a Greek word that means lazy, sluggish, a complacent listener. One thing that will hinder the normal Christian growth is to be dull of hearing the Word of God, to be a lazy hearer, to be one who doesn't pay attention. Verse 12, he goes on and says, For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles or the teachings of God, and are become as need of milk and not of strong meat. Um, you should be at the stage of teaching others, but you, you need to relearn things because you've, here's what I've learned. What you don't use, you begin to lose. You ever notice that? If you don't pass it on, you begin to lose it. So you got to teach, and as you teach, you become a recipient. And so the Bible tells us that there is a rebuke for those who only learn and never teach. You know, there's two main bodies of water that are in Israel. One is the Sea of Galilee, the other is the Dead Sea. I've been to both. They both have the Jordan River that flows into them. 
One distinction is the Sea of Galilee is just teeming with life. It's the lowest fresh body of water on the planet. And it just has very heavy nutrients. And and there's a lot of fish. Great for fishing. That's why a lot of the disciples were fishermen. The other is, so the Jordan flows into the Sea of Galilee, out of the southern part of the Sea of Galilee, goes down, and it flows into the Dead Sea. The problem is, in the Dead Sea, there's nothing living. Nothing. You will find nothing. When we were driving uh, along, um, uh, down to, along the Dead Sea, it's a beautiful body of water. I mean, just as beautiful as you could imagine. And uh, our Jewish guide was there, and I said, man, look, there's a guy out there fishing. He's like, really? I was like, no. There's nothing living out there, man. <laughs> he was like looking out the window. Um, you know, one of the main differences The Sea of Galilee receives water and gives, but the Dead Sea only receives. There's no outlets to it. It just hoards everything it has. And you know, water that doesn't flow out turns stagnant, doesn't it? And and as a Christian, we need to learn a lesson from that. We need to be those who not only receive the truth, but give the truth. Jesus said in John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Now, You need to understand, there are four general phases to the Lord's calling of these men. There's four general phases. The first was He called them to salvation. John 1, you see many of them coming to Christ. Phase 2 was His call to follow Him. To leave their professions and to be a full-time follower of Jesus Christ. This is what you could call organic teaching. They would now live with Jesus all the time. Part of their training was just being around Him. He was imparting his life unto them, his daily disciplines, daily habits, daily prayers, how he ministered to people. They saw firsthand his miracles, heard all of his teachings. There is much you can learn in the classroom and there's much you cannot learn in a classroom. You, you, you need on-the-job training and that's what he gave them. There was a third phase and that's what we come to in chapter 10. He begins to send them out two by two. They're not yet on their own, but they're given assignments to preach the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand to do miracles, to authenticate their message with those miracles. They would come back, report to him. He would do further teaching. This went on for a while. And then the fourth phase is what you find after he resurrects in Acts chapter number 1, verse 8. This is when he sends them out permanently. Verse 8 in chapter 1 says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem. That would be like in, in your hometown. In Judea would be like, so if Jerusalem was like Xenia, Judea would be like Green County. Samaria would be like the enemy territory. That would be like unto Michigan. And then unto the uttermost part of the earth, that's like California. No, so... Oh, we got people from California today, I forgot. But they went out, they preached, they led people to Christ, they baptized them, they discipled them, they trained men, they ordained men to preach, they started churches, and they just kept reproducing this process. And you see this happening in the New Testament. They prayed for people, they trained them, they sent out preachers to start churches and do missions work. Acts 13 verse 1 says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manian and they which were brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, as they ministered and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, see what they're doing? They're, they're ministering, they're learning, they're training, they're in stage 1, 2, and 3, all that's going on. They're fasting, they're praying. And the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they fasted and prayed and laid their hands upon them, this is the ordination of the church of these men. We just had a formal ordination for uh, Braden just a couple months ago. It's going to be starting and planning on starting a church. And, and it says, and they, and they sent them away. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. The church sent them out, but it was the Holy Ghost who sent them out. Departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And this launched one of three great missionary journeys. They would go preach the gospel, see people saved, baptize, disciple them. They would train them, men like Timothy and Titus. And then they would take the churches, and then they would go ahead and continue to reproduce that. That's what I've done for the last 20 years of my life. 
Graduated college, went and helped my brother start a church with eight people. That grew up to 600 people, and then they launched us out. We launched another church out. We sent another guy out. Here, we're training guys. We sent a missionary out. We're training other guys. We have a ministry training class. We, we train guys even in-house, guys who take online courses or courses that we're taking them through here at the church and training young men for the ministry to be pastors and missionaries and teachers, and, and that's the God-ordained process. You don't learn ministry by going to a Bible college. You don't. I've done that. I've been a part of two church plants that grew up to 600 plus. I've been a part of multiple church launches. You learn it. You can learn information in a college, but you learn application on the field, right? Big difference between information and application. It's like the guys who've been on the job for 30 years. A 22-year-old comes in with his degree and starts telling everybody what to do. They're like, listen, young man, you may have information. You don't even know what you're talking about. Is that right? It's right. There's wisdom. It's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. So here Jesus calls 12 disciples. Now, why 12? Well, there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? 12 tribes that laid the foundation to build the nation of Israel upon. These would be 12 apostles that would be the foundation of building the church. Ephesians 2.20 says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Revelation 21.14 talks about New Jerusalem and the foundation of that city. And it says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the name of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Their names were written there. Jesus said in Luke 22.29 and 30 that they would be judges over the twelve tribes at that time in the kingdom. So twelve men were chosen. Now, secondly, what kind of men did Jesus call? What kind of men did Jesus call? I mean, what kind of men were these 12 men that shook the world for the glory of God? What kind of incredible guys were these? Well, they were a diverse group of people, different backgrounds. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were brothers, and they were all fishermen. They were two sets of brothers. Matthew was a tax collector. The other men were at different professions. We're not quite sure what all of their professions were. The Bible doesn't speak to it. They had different political points of view. Uh, Levi was a tax collector who would have aligned himself with Rome. Simon was a zealot who aligned himself with Judaism in such a fierce way that zealots were known to kill people like Matthew. And if it weren't for the gospel, it could have been possible for Simon to murder someone like Levi. That's how, that's how great the contention would have been. They were very common... They were, they were not some special elite group. They, they, they were not highly educated. They weren't educated in, in, in any high degree. They, they were not wealthy, prestigious, famous. They didn't have political power. They didn't come from religious leadership. They, they would have been considered in that day the non-privileged group. None of them came from high social status. They were just plain, ordinary, blue-collar guys who did the greatest of works that has ever been done on this earth. They, they were the catalog of who Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse 26, when he says, For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, the base things of the world and that which is despised hath God chosen, yea, the things that are not, to bring to naught the things that are. Why? Read verse 29 with me. That no flesh should glory in His presence. So when it gets done, they'll never say, the only way that could have happened is because that guy was in charge. No, they would have to conclude, boy, God must have been involved because there's no way they could have done that on their own. It's always been the design of God to use the weak to confound the wise, hasn't it? I mean, Moses, who's spoken of like 800 times in the Bible, was an absolute coward to the call of Christ, to the call of God in Exodus 3. I mean, Moses is like, I can't even speak right, God. I mean, this is the kind of guy he would have been. I mean, he's stuttering along, he's nervous, scared. Five different excuses between Exodus 3 and 4. He couldn't, he tried to get out of it as much as you and I try to get out of stuff. God uses the Davids to defeat the great giant 
Goliath. God carved down the armies of Gideon, right? Down to 300 men. You know, when God called Jeremiah to preach, God said to him in Jeremiah 1.5, listen to this, this is fascinating to me. He says to Jeremiah, and Jer- do we have that verse, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5? He says, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. And remember when I said God chose us, not us choosing him. This starts in the womb here. So he says, I've chosen you for a plan. There's a plan I have for your life. And you're going to be a prophet to the nations. Listen, we read verse 5 and we're like, man, this Jeremiah must have been like a, a, born as a lion. This guy must have been as bold and courageous as any man we would have ever known. Natural courage, powerful speaking abilities, charisma, outgoing personality. I mean, this guy, everybody, I mean, this guy's got to be like. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 1 verse 6. Then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I'm a child. This is a grown man saying this. So God ordained him from the womb to be his prophet to the nations. And when he tells him, he's like, are you kidding me? No! I can't, I can't speak! You ever feel like that? You ever feel like that? Oh I, oh, I could never be a pastor. Oh, I could never be a teacher. Oh, I could never be, in a, I could never be a missionary. Oh, I could never be involved in that. I could never win. So I could ne- oh, Really? It may be exactly what God has called you to do, but you feel incapable, and that is exactly where God wants you to be. Because guess who you'll rely on? And listen to what God said to Jeremiah, verse 7. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child. Don't say that. For thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces. Why? Why? You see how you ask the question, you answer it from the Bible? Why? For, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand, and what did he do? Oh, who enables the preacher? Who enables the teacher? Who enables the evangelist? Who enables the soul winner? Who enables you? It's the Lord who touches our mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. And once God put his words in the mouth of Jeremiah, look what verse 10 says. See, I have set thee this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build and to plant. That is, you're the most powerful man on the planet, Jeremiah. And what makes you powerful? Because you're just a clay pot You have this treasure in earthen vessel that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of who? Not of us. We are not sufficient to think anything is of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. The the power of God is in the Word of God, isn't it? So for us to have the power of God in our life, what do we have to have in our hearts? See, you're answering it. It's answering it all biblical. That's good. It's a Bible. It's just what it is. Perhaps one of the most incredible and confounding truths about these 12 men that Jesus called, Jesus did practice some exclusivity. He wasn't totally inclusive. There was some exclusivity to Jesus in calling them. Among the group, there was not one man who was a priest, no scribe, no lawyer, no doctor of the law. None were elders, none were religious leaders. There was no Sadducees, no Pharisees. The one group Jesus excluded from the twelve were all religious leaders. Like, if you were involved as a religious leader, you are now exempt, or you're not able to be involved in Jesus' (laughs) twelve. Now, why no religious leaders? Because sometimes the things you have learned will hinder you greatly from the things you need to know. You ever find that to be the case with people? The religion of the Jews, in fact, did not bring men closer to God in that day. It actually took them farther away from God. People say, as long as you're sincere in your faith, that's all that matters. No, it's not. Truth matters. Truth is much more important than sincerity. Let me say that again. Truth is much more important than sincerity. It is obviously important for you to be sincere and genuine, but you can be sincerely wrong. 
The religion of the day was supposed to point them to the true God, but instead it got infiltrated with man's traditions, man's thoughts, man's teachings, and as a result, the most religious people in that day were the furthest away from God. Jesus rebuked the great doubt and disbelief in the religious leaders this way. He said in Matthew 21, 31, he gave a parable and he concludes the parable by saying this. To the most religious-like preachers of his day, he said, the harlots and publicans go into the kingdom of God before you. Like the, the tax collectors who are the worst people in society and the Harlots, the prostitutes. I mean, they're going to get saved before you guys. I mean, you think that was offensive? (laughs) What did that just tell everybody in society? You don't want to listen to your religious leaders. These guys are a mess. Now, why would they enter before the religious leaders? Because they were willing to humble themselves, repent, and trust in Christ. If you're in great sin and God's word comes and convicts you, it will crush you and you will repent. But when you're religious, you can cover all of that up with a religious self-esteem. There's worldly self-esteem that's just another word for pride. And then there's religious self-esteem, which is even worse. There's nothing worse than religious pride. You cannot have a greater sin. It is the grossest kind of sin. Today, it doesn't matter how religious you are. Your religious upbringing, your religiosity could actually be what's keeping you from God. Religion with pride leads to spiritual ruin. Your faith should always produce a deep internal humility. A a, a desire of repentance. True religion is built on a relationship with Jesus Christ, not just intellectually, but... It causes humility in you. You you turn from sin. You're ashamed of your sin. And so, God calls these twelve. Now, what kind of men were these? First of all, these were imperfect men. Let me tell you some of their imperfections. They often lacked faith. They often lacked faith as a group. During a storm at sea that Jesus intentionally allows them to go into, they feared for their lives. Jesus is sleeping on the back of the boat. They wake Jesus up, scared for their lives, and he wakes up while the water's coming over. I mean, this is a severe storm. Matthew 8, 26, he says, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? They were known as the little faith group. Peter sank after he gets out of the boat, starts walking on water, and Jesus says, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? In Matthew 16, he rebuked them again for their lack of faith. Matthew 17 when they could not cast a demon out of an individual, they said, why could we not cast the demon out? And Jesus said in Matthew 17, verse 20, Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, you don't have enough faith. You know, the, the, the phony, false um, healers today, if, they, if somebody doesn't get healed, they don't blame it on their faith. They always blame it on the person's faith, don't they? Jesus said the reason they didn't get healed is because of your faith. But they don't go by the Bible anyway, so why would they ever come to that? But their greatest lapse of faith in them was seen after Jesus rose from the dead. Even though he told them over and over and over again, they just couldn't believe it. I mean, the women come and tell tell, tell the disciples of Jesus. Jesus tells them like six different times. At the end of his life, he said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, be killed, and three days later rise again. You ask the question, so what's going to happen to Jesus? And, and then they'd be like, well, you know, I think we're going to go to Jerusalem. We'll, you know, we'll hold the feast. And, no, didn't you just hear what he said? What did he say? Quit thinking like yourself and start thinking about what the scripture says. Like, what's he going to do? Well, you know, I think we're going to go to No, he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified three days later. Rise again. Did you hear that? They just, they just missed it. It's incredible to me. After Jesus rises from the dead, he uses a humble means In that day, women were not seen to be credible witnesses in that culture, and God chose to use women to be the first eyewitnesses. And the women come and tell the disciples that Jesus rose from the grave, and listen to how they respond in Luke 24, 11. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. They're like, you guys are just, this is a fairy tale. (laughs) Jesus appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus, 
And, and remember what Jesus said to them. He says, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Those two men, after they realize it's Jesus, they go back and they tell the other disciples. How do the other disciples receive that? Listen to Mark 16, 13. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterward, he peered unto the leaven as they said at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. They just couldn't believe it. Thomas I mean, the, uh, the ten of the disciples saw Jesus. They tell Thomas, and Thomas is like, unless I see his hand and put my finger in his hand and thrust my hand inside, I will not believe. <laughs> I want you to listen to what I'm going to say. How is a person saved? By grace, you're saved through. What's your faith in? Your faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. These guys are commissioned to reach the world with that gospel and they didn't even believe it when Jesus was with them. I mean, you'd have been like, this whole thing is not going to work. <laughs> I mean, they, if they don't believe it when they lived with Him for three years and their own people come back and say, He's risen, and they're like, ah, oh, we don't believe that. These guys are agnostics or atheists. What are they? Right? They're acting literally like atheists. They, they would only be persuaded by physical evidence. Well, that's not faith, Thomas. Now I want you to go to the whole world and preach the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. Talk about a failing mission here. How on earth is that going to work? You understand that's how powerful the gospel is through the work of the Holy Spirit. You think men can open people's eyes? They struggle to see it with the truth when Jesus was with them. Do you think you can talk your neighbor into salvation? Really? You need the power of the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. Does that make sense? Is, is, you see that? So how did Jesus overcome their lack of faith? He kept speaking truth into them. He kept speaking Scripture. On the road to Emmaus, when they didn't believe, you know what Jesus did in Luke 24, 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Instead of showing them His physical body, which He veiled from them at that time, He pointed them to the Scriptures. It's not a miracle that people need to believe. It's the Word of God that opens their eyes up. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? It's the Word of God. That's what brings salvation to hearts. So if the disciples lack faith, do you think you ever will? You know, sometimes I struggle with doubt, preacher. Oh, really? Really? Who was it in the Bible that said this? Um, are you the one or should we look for another Jesus? Is that, was that uh, J John the Baptist? If John the Baptist had bouts of doubt, do you think you and I might? I could talk about John the I don't have time to go into details of why he asked that, but, but if, 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 if they had doubts, listen, we're going to have doubts. You know how you remove those doubts? How, how do you remove those doubts? What's the Bible say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You want to increase your faith? Romans 10, 17, you get into the Word of God. Show me a person who struggles all the time with their faith, and I'll show you somebody who isn't spending enough time here. You fill your heart up with this, and your faith grows. This is like air and oxygen. If air is what produces a fire to be healthy, so the Word of God is the oxygen to your soul. You've got to fill it up. That's why the more you're in church, the more you study, the more you read, get in small groups, learn. Secondly, they often lack humility. These guys struggled with pride. It's incredible. Once they were in Capernaum and Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? And, and, and Mark 9.34 says, but they held their peace for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. <laughs> I mean, it's like toward the end of their training. They're like, who's the greatest? You're going to do that? Uh, Matthew 18.1, at the same time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is that all you guys worry about? James and John he even had their mom Go and say, hey, could my son sit on your right hand or on your left in the kingdom? And the other disciples were mad. Why were they mad? Because they didn't get there first. In the upper room, this is so incredible. 
Listen to Luke 22, 21. I mean, they're in the upper room. The next day Jesus dies. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me at the table. So Jesus is like with 12 disciples. He says, one of you will betray me. And the, truly the Son of Man goeth as it's determined, but woe unto that man by whom he's betrayed. And, and, and they, you know, they begin to inquire among themselves which of them it should be. Like, which one is it? Who is it? Who is it? And there was also a strife among them of which of them should be accounted the greatest. What? How did it get there? You know how it started? Lord, is it I? Is it I? Well, it can't be. I did more miracles than John last month. You know, I, I raised more people from... I did, you know... No, I, I'm better than you! It has to be Peter. He's a mess. He's always saying stupid stuff, you know? They, they, they would have... This, it would have done... We'd, we'd have been doing the same thing. I mean, Jesus like, one of you guys are going to betray me. It deteriorates into them arguing then about who's the greatest among themselves. This is unbelievable. And these are the guys you're going to use, God? To bring the gospel to us like 2,000 years later? Like, we're going to hell! Like, there's no hope, is there? Does this seem hopeless? I mean, if we read this and we were like 2,000 years in the future, we're like, everybody's an atheist in the world! It'll never get here! These guys are a wreck! Don't you have a better plan? God! Do you have no one else? This is ridiculous! This is insanity! Nope. There's no plan B. Boy, God, you use the weak things of the world to confound the wise. These are the foolish to... And I'm going to use these guys like a fire. And what you see in weakness now, you wait till the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells, dwells within them. And you wait till you see that little coward Peter who couldn't even speak of me before a woman stand up in front of thousands. You wait till you see what James becomes. You just wait till you see the faith of Thomas. You wait till the fire of God gets placed inside of them. I'm going to put them over the nations to root out and pull down. You may feel incapable today. You may be feeling weak. You may be feeling like, man, I just, I don't feel like God could really use my life. I feel like my faith wavers sometimes. I feel like I struggle with pride. Uh, Join the group of the 12 disciples. Right? A couple other things. I, I'm not going to be able to get through this whole sermon. The disciples, uh, they struggle to understand. They struggle to understand the simplest of things. I mean, they, they couldn't understand a lot of things Jesus said. They, just, they were afraid to ask Him. It often says they were afraid to ask Him. They didn't know what He was talking about. He would give a parable, and they're like, what does this mean? And Jesus said in Matthew 15, 16, are you also yet without understanding? He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, he's mad because we didn't take any bread. He's like, I just fed 5,000 and then 4,000 over here. How do you, why do you think I'm talking about bread? Don't you understand that I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees? And then they understood. It's like they just couldn't get it. When he talked about his death and resurrection, Mark 9.10 says, and they kept that saying in themselves, questioning one with another, what the rising of the dead should mean. What does he mean, the rising of the dead? They just couldn't get it. They just couldn't get it. In the upper room, they're sitting with Jesus, or I'm sorry, after, after Jesus risen from the dead, he's with them after his resurrection. Listen to what Luke 24, 44 says. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things should be fulfilled, which were what? Written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Read the Bible, it is what testifies of me. Verse 45, how do they ever get it? Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. It's divine enabling. Do you, you see that? It's, it's turning it on for them. And you know who has the light turned on for them? Those who take their weak faith and cast it at the feet of Jesus. Those who take their, their frailty and they just keep following. They keep pursuing. It is God who reveals reality to us. You would never be here today if it wasn't for the grace of God. It's not your goodness that brought you here. It's not your, oh, you're just so diligent, you're just so faithful. Really? You think you're all that, right? You may be religious and lost if you have that mindset. You're only here because of the mercy of God, and it should cause you every morning to fall on your knees and face before God and say, thank you for being merciful to me, a sinner. How could we not? The disciples were dull of hearing. 
Friend, if the 12 disciples struggle to understand the Bible, do you think we ever will? Do you think we'll ever struggle? Yeah. You know, sometimes people use excuses. Well, you know, I just don't understand the Bible. So, Oh, so you're not going to read it. You wait till the rebuke that's coming to you when you stand before God. Because he rebuked them when they were seeking it and didn't understand it. Well, if you're just lazy, then you're going to get a double rebuke. Because you'll never pass on what you don't receive. And you'll never teach because you've never learned. You find more value in going home after church instead of plugging into a life group or plugging into a class to learn the Word of God. Do you know all the answers that's being taught there? Do you know all those Bible teachings? Is your time so valuable? Have you put the things, the bread of this life, above the bread of, the, of God's Word? Uh, I, I say that, and that may be convicting for you by another sinner saved by grace, but what do you think God feels about that? I think we have taken God's Word so lightly these days. It's embarrassing. I, I am tired of trying to get Christians to read their Bibles. It, it just wears my soul out. Like, don't... And then sometimes uh, the, the prayer lives of, of, of our own lives, our prayer lives, our reading, our, our, our memorization. People, oh, I can't memorize the Bible. So you never try? I have a lady in our LBI, our Lighthouse Bible Institute. She's in her 70s, and she can quote about every verse that I ever turn to. I'm like, what's the rest of that verse say? And she's over there telling us. Like her mid-70s. I hope I got that right. I might get in trouble if it's wrong. <laughs> Her husband's like 110, but <laughs> no, he's fun to tease. So how did Jesus overcome their lack of understanding? He gave them the, the word of God. They struggled with commitment at times. They struggled with commitment. You know how in the garden, oh, we'll never deny you, never, and then they, then they fall away, don't they? And, and how, does, how does Jesus overcome that? You know, he prayed for them. In Luke twenty two thirty one, 31, he says, Simon... I've prayed for you that your faith fell not. When you're converted, strengthen your brethren. So much I could say, but I need to be done. The fields are widened to harvest, friends, but the labors are few. How do we reach this world? How do we reach this world? We don't invent methods, do we? We ask the question, what's the Bible say? We begin to pray for labors. Pray for people to go and labor to bring the gospel to the world. And as you pray, you'll find yourself willing to go. You cannot sincerely pray for labors without being willing to be a laborer. Realize God uses normal, everyday people to do His work. They showed weakness of faith, pride, jealousy, envy. They lacked understanding. They struggled with their commitment. They reflected doubt in the resurrection, but God used them to reach the world with the gospel. God's plan to reach this harvest world, this great harvest, is to use normal, everyday, simple people like you and me.